0: You're listening to Muslim Girls Fence, Reimagining Care. A series exploring community and self-care in light of structural racism and inequalities we face. In this series we interview participants and coaches from Muslim Girls Fence, academics, activists and artists about their experiences over the past year and through all the lockdowns. We find out what care means to them, whether they feel cared for, what some of the barriers are to accessing healthy spaces and what they imagine a future to look like where we are all looked after and centered. We hope to show that care and well-being is dependent on so much more than candles and bubble baths, although that does help. As Audrey Lord said, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, an act of political warfare. Our fourth episode of Reimagining Care features psychiatrist and drama therapist Sara Al sadaf our fencing coach Vinny, and participants Taryn and Mona. We speak about the barriers to accessing mental health services through the NHS, why it's important to have therapists who are aware of structural racism and Islamophobia, and how capitalism and the fast-paced lifestyle we live impact our
1: well-being.
2: Hi, I'm Taryn. I have been with Muslim Girls Fence since 2019. Um, I'm a poet and I'm also a mental health advocate and hoping to work in mental health. I do think we do need more support in mental health in general, whether that's long term or short term. Like I know like the wait list, for example, for finding a therapist is like the minimum is like six months, but even then it could take years. So. We should definitely have more changes in supporting us. They should definitely start talking about mental health, like how it whether it's a curriculum or just have it as regular talks in schools. Because like um, in high school, that's when you first start, start um, struggling with mental health, and a lot of kids at that age don't have the support. Like when I was younger, I I was dealing with a bunch of stuff, and I didn't really have anyone to go to. So it'd be good for it to start when you're younger and yeah I feel I think there should also just be more talks and more support they should have um like therapist or counsellors every day in in schools whether it's primary school or in high school and there's like higher education if I had to go through a generic route to to talk about my personal issues I wouldn't so if it's like through NHS there there's a big problem where uh, there's not enough therapists in general, and especially for Muslim therapists or therapists that are not people of color. If I were to go to like um talk about my issues, I would go to a organization that I've actually gone to before called MindWorks, and they're actually a organization that helps you f- helps find. The right therapist for you or counsellor, whether that's to do like you want to find someone that talks in your own language or someone from the same background or religion. So, I think that is definitely someone that needs to get be improved on because that's, that does have like cultural, um, like barriers or religious barriers. But I do think it was like my any other type kind of. Stigmas have affected the young people's um, mental health. I think when it comes to Islamophobia, it is something that is rising, sadly. And some people don't feel they are safe sometimes or that they will be listened to or understood, which kind of makes it worse. In general, we haven't been taught to be kind to ourselves. So whenever we're doing this, anything in life, if we make mistakes or if we're doing, I don't know, for example, if we're just working or trying to help someone, if we make a mistake, we kind of like push it on ourselves really hard, thinking like, oh no, like I can't do this, I'm useless. Or like, oh, I have to get this right. And I feel like um, we're not taught to be more conscious of what we're doing. And that just turned because I feel like when we've been hard on ourselves, this is worsening our mental health. And we shouldn't we shouldn't be hard on ourselves because I think is this it makes the situation worse. In the lives we're living, it's just like very fast paced where we don't have time to breathe or think or sometimes even eat. And I just realized like over time, because I didn't I live in a city. Is this affects our mental health a lot and just our general lives? Or sometimes we don't even have time to eat or to even like speak to the people that we care about. And I feel like also with considering how fast-paced everything is, it's it's not um sustainable and like we're not in a way that we're not being conscious of what of what we're doing and seeing like our actions. And it's just I feel like long-term, it just doesn't help our mental health because we just, I feel like for us and our body and our mind is, we're not made to be like non-stop working, like we're a cognitive machine. I am someone who, I do suffer with depression and anxiety, and I've been doing it since I was like a teenager. So I've learned a lot of stuff from over the years. And I realised, um, before I used to be very, um, how do I explain, I used to be very insecure. And I still have, like, a lot of self-doubts. And I realised over the years that I need to start appreciating myself. That is something I try and do, like, every now and then. we just, like, for just, like, the body I'm in and the person I am, I make sure to 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 make sure to remind myself that I am worthy and I am amazing. That's what I try to, that's what I That's what I say. I feel like the world we are living is kind of, like, we're all about, like, it's, like, a hustle-based life where we always have to be grinding away, and I guess to, um, I would like to say to remind people like it's not all about product productivity. I know especially in the pandemic, people are just always boasting and making sure they're always doing, making sure that this time is about doing the most that they can, like making sure they're all catching up and everything they've wanted to do their whole lives. So I feel like just, it's not always, just remind you, just remember that it's not always about being productive, like you are human first and you can relax and not always have to have an agenda for something.
0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Um, We have Sara El-Sadaf with us, who is a doctor, psychiatrist and drama therapist. She tried um, conventional approaches uh, to mental illness and began exploring paths that have led to creative and energy healing, somatic practice, social justice and spirituality. She facilitates openings and closings using rituals, stories, nature connections. Um, She has also Um, She also researches co-production and participation in marginalised communities. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ayla. So we start most of the interviews in the same way by just asking you to reflect on what does care or caring mean um, to yourself? And what does it mean to care for a community or for your community?
3: Thank you. Um, Well, I'll start with myself. Um, I'm a mother of two young children and self-care is something that I have to really make time for in my daily life. Um, But without it, I have noticed that I can become quite depleted. So for me, it's a practice which um, is essential. Um, So I think particularly when people are are trying to balance children, uh, work life, um, stepping into their communities and thinking about and hoping to or acting in order to support their communities, they can burn out pretty quickly Um, and so and it certainly happened to me working um, in the NHS for a number of years um, and also taking on certain um, social justice issues and being an activist um, around certain difficult and distressing issues it became really clear to me that I had to care for myself so this is something that I have Ensured um, that I honour um, within myself, and it has definitely enabled me to um, become more spacious um, in my in myself and in my work, and more generous in in how I am with myself, with my children, with my partner, and then further out with my family, support networks, and community. Um, and in terms of actual care practice. Um, I think it's really important to me to um, have a spiritual practice. um, And it's also important for me to have creative practices, um, practices which um, honor my physical self, so exercise, um, and practices which allow me to reflect and imagine. So things like journaling um, and art, music,
0: amazing and you've talked a little bit about your journey working within um mental health and how it kind of shifted over the years and um just could you just reflect on why you think it's really important to have therapists or mental health professionals who um have an understanding of things like religion um different cultures traditions and also kind of bigger structural inequalities and how that impacts
3: individuals yeah sure i mean i think the easiest way for me to start answering that question is to think about my own journey as a muslim woman of color um as a child of migrants um As somebody who doesn't really fit into the social class system, um, having had scholarships to private schools, um, and how how do I navigate these different spaces um, that I am in? Um, So I had to witness my parents, for example, who didn't come here to migrate um, for economic reasons. They just um, they came here to do their PhDs and then. The wars, the wars in Iraq um, became more and more, um, they became more difficult to imagine returning to Iraq at that point. Um, and uh, they basically weren't able to go back. So they they had to remain here. So I, as a young child, I, I had to watch what happened to them in terms of the forced um, displacement from their land, from their families. And the the multiple um, stresses they then face, um, including thinking about suddenly thinking about how to become employed in this country, housing, um, how to look after four children when they previously had massive support networks, um, and yeah, all the different issues they had to navigate, which are still um, very much prominent um, for. People from marginalised communities, is practical issues around um, access to safe and decent housing, to opportunities to education and employment. Um, all these structural issues are still um, there. There are still inequalities. There, there's still inequity um, for people from marginalised backgrounds. Um, yeah. So for me. Coming from um, a Muslim family and seeing how their faith connected them, gave them strength. Seeing how my, you know, my parents, uh, one of the consistent things that they could hold on to was their faith. Um, and I, I have my own, uh, obviously personal and different journey with Islam um, and with my faith practice. But um, for me, it it's really important that people um, are able to express themselves um, and their religions openly, um, and to be to have spaces which welcome people's spiritual practices. Sometimes it might be a community who are from one particular spiritual practice who are meeting together, for example, and discussing mental health, um, discussing health and mental health issues. But sometimes it It's also about bringing together people from different spiritual and faith practices and thinking on uh, on issues um, outside of just one particular faith. So, yeah, does that answer some of your questions?
1: Definitely. And
0: in some of your work, you specialise in working with marginalised communities. and we kind of also witness that with a lot of the, the girls we work with. Um, but how would you describe, or how have you like witnessed um, bigger, more abstract kind of structural issues manifest themselves in people's everyday life and their well being? So, whether it's kind of more structural racism um, or Islamophobia, have you kind of seen how it, on, a, on an individual level, what that? Can look like for people
3: yeah, definitely. Um, I think I just massively sighed because I worked in East, in East London as a psychiatrist, and East London, as you know, is an extremely diverse area with lots of large communities um, who have migrated over you know years. So there's, there's new migrants, there's old migrant communities, there's this like amazing, fascinating kind of melting pot. But within the health services, the same um, inequities exist. Uh, the same, the, so for example, um, the understanding of, <clears throat> Of different ways that people might relate to mental health issues, for example, different cultural ways that people might approach um, issues around mental health, uh, the way it might be stigmatized in certain communities, is not often um, mainstreamed into um, the health service that would be available in in a region where you'd expect it to be available because it's serving a large number of people from that, those communities so what happens for example is people will um, in desperation sometimes often family members will try to access health services they come to health services and then find that they are not set up to um to respect Sometimes their culture or their value system. Um, But more often than not, it's about not actually providing options for people which they would be willing to participate in because those communities are often not consulted. So it means that the people who are shaping these healthcare systems are not people who are directly affected by. by the issues which bring people to the healthcare system in the first place. Uh, so it's, it's yeah, it means that people just then don't access because they don't find something they resonate with and they often have to deal with people with severe mental illness or people who, are, um, who, who could, could have support. They, they might do it just in the family, might keep it quite quiet, secretive, um and and then don't access support um so that that's an example and then in terms of wider structural inequalities you find that um a lot of it is about access so it's there's often you know there there can be language barriers people um aren't given information um or can't um access health services because they don't know where to go they don't know how to get there they don't have the money to get there Um, so all of these things still very much exist um, and are barriers to people accessing both health care for mental and physical health
0: it's really interesting
3: kind of the barriers
0: that you listed because we encounter the same kind of barriers when it comes to accessing sports or physical activity offers where it's again it's designed without the either without just with kind of middle class white people, middle class white women in mind, or if it's done um it's kind of just taking this like generic BAME approach and not really thinking about communities as as individuals and that uh, we're not a monolith and that you know each neighborhood might need a different type of service or a different type of solution. And um again things like socioeconomic backgrounds often not considered that people won't get on three buses to get to to your class or won't get um, yeah, if there's kind of no um option to to have your children there leave your children there or that it works around like a um school schedule, it's not gonna be accessible to the people um you claim it's for um so it's really interesting to see mm-hmm. that it's kind of the same thinking is applied across so many different sectors and the same exclusions are then also Mm -hmm. applied across all the sectors and all the services that are meant to be accessible to everybody.
3: Yeah, completely. And I think one of the main reasons is because people are not consulted. People from the communities are not consulted and the decisions are made by people behind closed doors who think they know what might be best for this community, maybe because of some kind of tokenistic survey that was sent out, or maybe an occasional participatory um, meeting that was held in a community. But um, this kind of work needs to have much more deep depth, much more um, kind of long-term, deeper thinking collaborations um, between um, healthcare providers, and the people who are going to use the services in order for there to be a real think around every component, which um, means that the the, the most vulnerable person in that community can access a service which is meaningful for them. Um, So we are not there yet, (laughs) but there are... um, there are spaces um, and there are places that are uh, um, that are becoming um, imagined and and coming into existence so there is hope. There definitely is
0: hope. It's a slow process but things are happening. Um, There's also maybe um, something that happens across mental health um, but also we see within the sports sector um, and education there's kind of a stigma that comes from outside the communities and that has an effect on how um, black and brown people are treated within health care systems or mental well-being systems and women in particular
3: mm-hmm. is that
0: something you've encountered as part of your work? And how?
3: Yeah, how how d- does that have a report effect on to communities? Yeah, completely. I mean, in general, there is still a, um, a stigmatized stigmatization of people who suffer mental health difficulties is is widespread. And it's generalized um, across um, across the board and it's still, it's still something which is being tackled. Um, for example, there have been many large organizations like Time to, Time to Change, um, which have been around for a number of years who have been trying to change the narrative around mental health um, at a national level um, to encourage people to seek support for their well-being. Um, so that's, on a national level, the narrative um, is, is tr- people are attempting to change the narrative around mental health and well being. Um, but it's, it's still, um, there, there's still high levels of stigmatization, there's still stereotypes as regard to who suffers um, psychotic disorders, and, and you, this is even within mental, the mental health profession. So you find there are studies, for example, that show that black men, young, young black men um, receive diagnoses of psychosis at a higher rate than young white men, um, that they, re- they receive higher levels of medication, um, higher doses, that they are restrained more often and um, can suffer um, consequences, health consequences of these restraints. Um there are still there are still yeah, um, psychiatrists who will um, diagnose black men in particular um, with with diagnoses which um, their white counterparts might not receive. Um, so so we we see still um, within the profession stigmatization and then also outside of depression, just in the general public as well um and also obviously in communities um it can be very different on dependent on each community um, but you obviously have people who have different ideas about what mental health might mean um, and therefore they they might not want any they 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 keep it quite secret they might not want anybody else in the family or in the community to know about it um, And that can be for various reasons including um, ways that they have interpreted religious texts around mental health or or cultural cultural ideas so it's really it's really important for people who are working with those communities to understand what um to understand really which i mean it's very difficult to generalize i think in those cases you really do have to try to to work with um, the local leaders, um, religious faith leaders, to try and engage them, to try and go out into the community spaces rather than expect people to come to a clinic or a hospital, um, but to try and try and actually take the public health message, the destigmatizing messages. Um, that to, to, but but people are only going to engage if there is safe spaces they can access. So. So that's the other side of it so as well as being able to try and get the message out around looking after mental health there also has to be the, the service available
0: definitely definitely there's also kind of thinking around an addition kind of to all the stuff we already talked about that people of color and women of color are dealing with there's also the aspect of living under capitalism and living in a city and especially in London I feel like things are very fast-paced and very um it's almost like yeah you're always in demand to do something or or be somewhere or do the next thing do you you Mm. feel like those kind of pressures have an impact on our self-image and our mental well-being as a result of it and is that yeah is that something you've encountered
3: yeah i think um capitalist ideas are really harmful for health both for physical and mental health i think this idea around productivity and constant um kind of being being like almost machine like and and producing all the time and then having certain times where you're supposed to fit in pleasure or rest um are really counterintuitive actually and not not they, they certainly don't work for a vast um, a vast majority of people. But um, in the capitalist system, you you work um, and you're supposed to be efficient. And um, only recently have um, the there the been acknowledgement that some women actually cannot work um, because of the 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 pain and the the, and some people get I um, actually have very, very large sways in their in their moods around those times, and it's very difficult for them to to work then so that's just an example of how, for instance, hormones um, and um, the hormonal kind of cycles that women experience, in addition to, for instance, some people going through a lot of hormonal changes at pregnancy um, and in the menopause and other times of their lives but often not acknowledged um within the workplace and often women are stay quiet about it um, and silently suffer or um or uh just uh you know find have to lie which is also um it shouldn't be the case they might have to lie about why they're not able to come in um for three days or five days, once every month, I may not even be able to hold on to a job because of that. Um, so, so, these can be more not not every woman suffers in this way, but there are there are women who suffer very much in this way, um, and it's not it's not acknowledged. Um, this is just an example of what is kind of is is just kind of not um, taken into consideration um, by. By capitalist systems, which constantly just demand people um kind of get out of bed, have your shower, quickly, you know, get yourself ready and go off to work. I think
0: that that was yeah, very, very good. And I definitely like resonate with all of that as well. And the especially like as like creatives, this like pressure to constantly be productive is so. Counterintuitive to being
1: creative and like actually doing, doing the
0: the, the thing you chose to do. Yeah, it,
3: it's yeah, it's yeah pressure. Um, and and it's really difficult because of the structure. It's it kind of has you in this bind that okay, well you have obviously people have to to pay their bills. So how if you don't do this by this date, you're not going to get paid um and that kind of level of stress on a person's well-being is um it builds up um you know our bodies hold onto these memories um of of ourselves feeling kind of stressed um and having to do something to to meet a deadline um and i and i just think there are that there are very different ways of working um which very which can center self care, which can allow for a slower pace. um, And which means that people's creativity can be allowed to flourish um, in a way that is organic, rather than forced.
0: Definitely. Um, You kind of already spoke a little bit about how your journey as a professional, how you started off with more conventional approaches and um, then started applying more creative approaches to um, um, yeah, mental health and wellbeing. Um, if someone has kind of never heard of like a creative approach to therapy or to mental health services, what, what can that look like? What, who is that for? Can you talk us a little bit about
3: like, yeah, what that could look like? um about creative uh, creative approaches mental health yeah okay yeah so um thank you for this asking this question i will try not to go on about it for ages um but um i feel that um i i went into i studied medicine at a very young age like lots of people do at 18 and once again like lots of 18 year olds do. I wanted to help people. um, And um, I entered this massive system, the national health system, um, and the university system. And by the time I had kind of churned, been churned out of it, um, and come out as a junior doctor on the other side. um, I, I just felt that um, I I was highly skilled. and i had had a lot of um training and i'd been uh you know tick boxed to my eyeballs up to my eyeballs um you know i'd had I'd had to go through so many exams and and all of that um and been you know watched over so i could do this skill and that skill but by the end of it it didn't really feel like i um i was a doctor in the sense of that i was being with people and supporting them um, at, at really vulnerable times in their life. Um, I was also part of the system, which was all about get people in, get people out as quickly as possible. Um, and I really began to question what what am I what am I doing in healthcare? What is my role here? Um, and now, uh, personal circumstances, I was interested in psychiatry, but not massively interested. I was actually more of a medic, um, but personal circumstances led me to kind of um, do a short stint in psychiatry um, and, and I ended up staying on. Um, and psychiatry is a really interesting field um, in that it wasn't always a medical specialty. So the medicalization of mental health has, it has not always been that way. Um, in fact, mental um, the treatment of people who are mentally ill for centuries before the 1900s was, um, was done, um, depending on the community and their spiritual faith practices, their cultural practices. Sometimes it would be reconnecting someone to nature. Sometimes it would be. You know get, taking them to a spiritual healer um, multiple multiple ways of um, caring for and looking after people with mental illness um, sometimes people weren't looked after um, and uh, that's you know sometimes it, there was a very very difficult stigmatizations um, and leading to more distress for people who suffer mental illness um but psychiatry really kind of came into being a specialty um, and uh, it, it, in the 19, yeah, in uh, after the world, world Wars where these different um, diagnostic systems were created, like there's the American one, the DSM it's known uh, as, and they started to collect um, uh, si- different symptoms of psychiatric illness and then how they became diagnoses. Um, And so that's really how it entered um, into the medical model. So for a lot of people, they don't relate to this medical model. um, And and there isn't isn't evidence um, of of mental illnesses like psychosis and depression, for example, in the way that there might be um, biomedical markers for, for a particular medical illness, say diabetes. Um, so we don't have that, we don't take blood tests, we don't. We very rarely do scans unless we're trying to, um, to ensure that it's not something organic or so something in the brain. Um, so it, it also became clear to me that actually, really, um, it is like people have different approaches to this and why aren't we respecting people's different approaches? you also maybe reflect a little bit about um,
0: services or approaches for young people in particular and um, there was one participant we spoke to who is in school still and she was talking about how it's very difficult to actually know where to turn to or where to go if you just feel um, yeah, you feel down, but it's maybe not as severe as going to a doctor or going to, um, yeah, the NHS. Um, and I think just generally, we can see that with the school, we uh, the work we do in schools, there's quite a lot of maybe unsaid feelings or just things. It's very hard to articulate, it, especially around like younger teenage years. Around what they might be feeling and and how maybe they're starting to recognize these systems of oppression of um like gendered islamophobia and racism, but do not have the vocabulary or even the just the lived experience to be able to kind of pinpoint what that is, and it's just these feelings looming over you almost all the time um, and it, we can see that it can be very hard even for teachers who are very um keen to help to even recognize it or um to do anything because they haven't lived through it themselves um so is there anything you you think would be particularly helpful within for, like for young people and within the kind of school systems because it, it brings in additional layers of just bureaucracy and, and systems and um safeguarding protocols of how um, how young people can or should access
3: help mm-hmm. I think young people have so much wisdom um, and are often actually um, more uh, well positioned to to um, shape and imagine what they need than people who are older than them or people who run the services. But once again, they are rarely consulted. Their voices again rarely heard. They are actually marginalized in the sense that they are not um centered in their, their their own um shaping of what is delivered to them as services. So once again they get services which don't mean that meet their needs or match their needs. Um, and as you said, there are there are two particular systems where young people who are distressed might come into contact um, with one is the school system, where and schools have very variable support. So some schools may have counsellors, some schools may be linked with local um, non NGO counseling services, and some schools may have their own in-house counseling, and some schools refer to child and adolescent mental health services. If children are um, experiencing maybe slightly more levels of distress but as we know there are there are huge waiting lists for camp service there's increasing evidence that young people's um, rates of mental health uh mental illness is increasing um there's obviously all the stressors around social media and um all the kind of cyber bullying and everything that goes on there um and the people who are trying to manage and run these these services do not have the experience because these things didn't even exist when we were young people, you know, so it's the, it, the, very much many, many of the kind of issues are, are issues that young, the young people know the youth know, know way more about than older people so really. I think the starting point is that they, they need to be consulted. They need to participate if they if they want to, they should there should be um, nationwide local community consultations to allow them to have their voice heard about what they what kind of services they need. Amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us. That was
0: really, really um enlightening and, and fascinating and definitely resonated, I think, with all of us. Thank you.
1: Hi, my name is Mona. I think it's very difficult for people from different socioeconomic statuses to understand people from other lower, for instance, economic statuses, or people from one background trying to understand the mental health issues that come with another background, where a Muslim woman who you know, comes from a lower socioeconomic status and background and who might not speak perfect English, he might be unable to see where she comes from and what her concerns are. And so less emphasis and less weight is given to her mental health. In fact, there are so many situations where you will hear these pale, pale male doctors, for instance, and you know i I can talk about doctors more than other people in healthcare who might see you know these Asian women or um like Somali women and things like that and say oh she's she's just complaining about pain, she's complaining about pain, and really, a lot of it has to do with some kind of mental anxiety that they're going through, and they are not focusing on that because pain and the intensity that we feel it with, and you know the other problems that we experience often also have a psychological component to it. And it's easy to deal with the broken bone, but it's difficult to deal with the, uh, the psychological component of what that broken bone might mean to somebody.
4: My name is Binny, and I'm a paediatric nurse uh, in Birmingham, and I work alongside with Maslaha teaching hunting to Muslim girls. This whole sort of um, year has been quite quite different because some of the first lockdown was uh, obviously was something new and it was also fresh. And the participants really enjoyed it, meeting different people. And as time uh, went on, I noticed a lot of the students became withdrawn um, because they were having they were having issues, whether it was to do with work or personal lives. It became emotionally draining because you're behind a screen and all you want to do is either just give them a hug or it was just a lack of touch. And although, you know, you it's not something that, you know, like, you would do with your students or anything but it's just that having that face-to-face connection um and being present present in their pain or whatever they're going through but I felt on screen it was just so emotionless like from my part although I'd like to say that I did make a difference or you know I was able I was here and to allow them to sort of like speak to me freely and like my organisation that we're, like I work for has been absolutely amazing, like in terms of safeguarding and that, um, and to make always make sure that mentally that I was I was fine. Although you know you can possibly maybe they'll think that I need more help than the normal person, um, but that's been that's been like the big kind of difference for me with this whole year, like knowing that okay when I switch the screen off, are they going to be okay?
0: Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Listen to the next episode as we continue the conversation. To find out more about Muslim Girls Fence and the work we do, visit muslimgirlsfence.org and find us on Instagram at maslaha underscore UK and at britishfencing and on Twitter at maslaha and at britishfencing.